0: And we are going to read the parallel accounts to what uh, Elder Fuget has already read in the other two gospel accounts where it is found. I did figure it would be a mercy, though, to let you sit for the reading of these next two sections. So while we just read of Jesus healing the demoniac in the Gospel of Luke, we will now turn to read the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8... We will read the same account, which is given there in a shorter form, in verses 28 through 34. So Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34, read, And when he came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out and send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially what happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. If you would now turn with me, then, to read our third parallel account in the Gospel of Mark. We will read from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5, we will read verses 1 through 20. They came from the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but but he wretched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about two thousand rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. And the man who had been possessed with demons... The man who had been possessed of the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it. And the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. All right. I have just had a growing conviction over the recent years, this, that the, the reading and the hearing of the word is so vital. There are so many churches that abound where the reading of the word barely takes place on the side shelf. And while we, in our tradition, have a high place for the word preached, we also have a rich legacy of the word read and as read in the presence of God's people. And it is hard to get enough of it. So as we turn to this passage... This text, this story of Jesus healing this man, this man in a pitiable condition who has been possessed of demons, I'd begin, like to begin with a little bit of a lighter note. Uh, for those of you who met my third daughter, Cosette, even has happened this morning, uh, you may have been introduced to her by Cozy. But oftentimes, when her more formal name, Cosette, comes up, uh, there is a common conversation that actually happened here with Mr. Bill, which is, oh, that name, that from Hugo's play *Miserable*, and I—it actually doesn't directly. So for us, it wasn't that my wife or I had fallen in love with that story or the movie or the musical of any form. But we'd actually heard a, or a local pastor had that name. However, at the, the time, I was actually being trained to be a literature teacher. Actually, I was—I was teaching math, but I still had this part in my part of my heart and mind where uh, I desired to teach literature. And I thought to myself, I surely can't. Name my daughter, Cosette, a name that comes from a great one of the greatest works of Western literature without having read the book myself. I would be a poser to use that name, having not read the book myself. So I said I got to hunker down. If those who aren't familiar with it about depending on the printing anywhere from nine hundred to eleven hundred page uh, novel that has all sorts of ambling and ramblings about uh, the uh, French Revolution era. And I made it about a hundred pages in, in that time. Now, my sermon this morning is on mercy, but it is not the mercy of short books. Uh, This is a a roundabout way of getting to the fact that mercy is a theme that Hugo touches on throughout this book. And I do have to say, I finally got around to reading it about a year ago. And I've actually had some conversations with Pastor Prusik about uh, aspects of the book, which we both found very moving and touching and and, uh, just brilliant in uh, the way that it was written. It is a story uh, with universal themes that uh, touch every human life. Suffering and redemption. Judgment and mercy. It is a a book with exceptional characters uh, that are bold and fierce. John Valjean, the redeemed convict. Fantine, the embodiment of human suffering. Javert, the display of a life without mercy. And yet for all the beauty of this book, The author, Victor Hugo, does seem to miss something about human nature. Throughout the book, he seems to convey this idea that all we need, all we need to have our hard hearts transformed is mercy, kindness. That if people would just be shown a little bit of kindness, then that they would change, that they would turn from their wicked ways. And yet I find that the scripture gives us a different picture. Because throughout scripture we see people who are shown kindness. We see people who are shown tremendous kindness. And then yet persist in our hardness of hearts. Something more is needed than mere kindness. We could say something is needed more than just a general mercy. There is a special redemptive mercy That all humans need, which is only available in Jesus Christ, and which is what I believe the story we have from the life of our Savior this morning speaks about. I believe that in this story of Jesus encountering the demoniac, my wife was asking me, why do you call him the demoniac? He's the demon possessed man. Okay, so that's all I mean by the demoniac. But as Jesus encounters this demon possessed man, I believe that we see that the greatest mercy is from Jesus is being liberated from bondage and sin. The greatest mercy that you can receive from Jesus is the mercy of being liberated from the bondage of sin. And so as we consider this story from the life of Jesus this afternoon, specifically with an eye for his mercy toward the demoniac, uh, we're going to actually begin with um, looking at some of the broader contextual things going on in this passage, kind of frame the story and looking at some of the things going on within the text. And then we'll move on to see that actually this story, uh, in this story, the demoniac isn't the only one who receives mercy from Jesus. In fact, the townspeople receive great mercy from Jesus. And I would go so far as to say even the demons themselves. But that the greatest mercy is the mercy that was shown to the man who is possessed by a legion of demons. So to begin with, a couple notes on the text that we have before us. We're going to just begin very broad with the fact that this, this, this story, especially as we look at the three parallel accounts... It some very apparent contradictions right at the get-go. I don't know how many of you have studied this before or maybe even emerged as all three accounts were read this morning. But there are two very uh, apparent contradictions among these parallel accounts. Uh, The first is that in Luke and Mark, there's how many demoniacs? One. Yet in the Gospel of Matthew, the story is told of two. Now, some may say that these could be two different stories, but if you look at the rest of the details, there are too many parallels on it to say that these are two different stories. So Matthew speaks of there being two demon-possessed men, while Mark and Luke only recount one. So what are we to do with this? As people who are committed to the in- infallibility and the inerrancy of the scriptures, and yet there are these two stories that seem to have a fact that seem to be in direct conflict with one another. Jesus said Well, it's a pretty minor mistake. It doesn't really impact the meaning of the text. So those kinds of mistakes are okay. That's not what we mean when we talk about inerrancy. Is that all right, people of God, to say that there's these little mistakes but superficial? No, we cannot settle for that. And we are called to do our due diligence in studying the word and being like Bereans who who consider it. And to figure out if we believe that the Bible is without error, what do we make of an apparent contradiction like this. Well, this one actually, out of the two apparent contradictions I'm going to talk about, is actually relatively easy. The fact is that they don't contradict. It's not a contradiction for one person to say to mention two people at an event, and then for another person who's telling the story to only talk about one of those people. And that's basically what we have going on here. So while Matthew tells a bigger, fuller story, gives a little bit more journalistic detail by mentioning that there were two demoniacs, Luke and Mark have chosen to focus in on one of those men as they tell it. Now, we don't have a lot of detail in the text why Mark and Luke would have chosen to just focus in on one of the men, but there's a couple reasons that we could imagine might be why they would do this. One might be that the one demoniac may have just been more as steadfast in his commitment to Christ. We see all these stories turn with the demoniac following after Jesus. It's possible that only one of them actually was the one who, who, who followed after Jesus, because that part is less detailed in the Gospel of Matthew. But I think even more likely, uh, we have to think that when the Gospel accounts were written, a lot of the people who encountered these things were still alive.
1: They were reading these
0: accounts. And we see at the end of this that this man went on to testify to the mercy of Christ in the whole region round. So it is likely that this of the two men was still known. He was a known entity to the people who were reading these accounts. And part of the the purpose of the gospel accounts was to give an orderly and historical account that people could verify. And so they chose to focus on, on the one man who had been known at that time. Regardless of whether or not you uh, agree with those two statements, I think we can all agree that just because one account chose uh, to focus on one man and then the other chose to give more detail by mentioning that there were two, it doesn't have to be a conflict, especially since it never said that there was only one man. So that was apparent contradiction number one. apparent contradiction number two is the mentioning of where this event took place. So, again, we have an apparent contradiction between the account that Matthew gives and then that of Mark and Luke. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says that cross the seed to the Gadarenes. But then Mark and Luke say Garrisones. We might be tempted to say, oh, well, it's just a small spelling error. Or it might be the same place. It sounds a whole lot alike. Even in spelling them, I saw uh, they're almost the exact same length, have about half the same letters. They both start with G. They both end with S. Uh, but if you look at a map of the region of the time, there's actually two separate cities there. Gadara and Ga- Garesa. To further complicate it, if you look at the map, neither of those two cities are directly on the Sea of Galilee. So we have a further complication there. To make things even more confusing, to make you think that maybe there really was a mistake in all of them, there's another town just a little bit north called Gergesa, which is directly on the Sea of Galilee. So you think, did all these guys get it wrong? And did they, were they trying to say Gergesa and just couldn't quite get the spelling right? Well, oh, after all, surely a typo in the Bible should be okay, Right? No, we believe in an infallible, inerrant Word of God. So again, we must turn to uh, the Scripture and see how can this be accounted for. Well, in people of God, I have to say that there are times when we come up across apparent contradictions, and we don't necessarily have answers right away. This is one where there wasn't an evident answer for centuries. It didn't necessarily mean people didn't mean that people had to waver in their commitment to the inerrancy of God. It meant that they had to be okay saying. To themselves, I don't know, but I still believe it's without mistake. Are you comfortable saying that if you come across, if someone, a skeptic, an unbeliever, or even a Christian who's maybe being tempted with that, are you a, okay on occasion saying, I agree with you, that looks like it contradicts. But I know that God's word is sure and true, and that given enough time, given the right sources, we can find a way to reconcile all apparent contradictions. Well, this would be one account that, after centuries, it was eventually discovered through the work of, of scholars, archaeologists, and people who knew that area that there was actually a fairly reasonable uh, a fairly easy solution to this problem, which is that though there were two separate towns in the general region, Gedera and Grasa, they had a shared seaport on the Sea of Galilee, which can legitimately be referred to by either of the places because they both occupied that general region and so was it one or the other well actually the general region went by both names and uh, and so there's actually a fairly simple question to this problem that for many hundreds of years Christians didn't have an obvious answer to it but with time with research it actually was uncovered that there was a very simple answer to it and it the point of this sermon isn't to get bogged down in these little details this morning, but I, I do want to, one last comment on these two apparent contradictions. Is uh, this last year, I had the honor and privilege of uh, helping to start a classical Christian school up in the area where I live. And one of the things that I get to do there is I get to teach the Bible. And as I've been teaching the Bible, one, one of the things that has become evident to me is that as Christians, I think some of us, myself included, have a tendency to read the Bible purely for spiritual edification. Now, that's absolutely what every Christian should do, right? We should be people who turn to the word to nourish our souls. But I think as we turn to the word to nourish our souls, sometimes we actually fail to study it for some of the more technical details as well. And yet I think we have a duty to do that as well, to know the word, to to actually dig into these apparent contradictions and not just shrug our shoulders and be like, well, it doesn't really matter to me for my own personal spiritual life, so I'm just going to move on. But I think we actually have a duty to study the more technical details, even though you might not in that moment feel especially spiritually uplifted while digging into those parts of it. And I know we're all a little bit different. Some of us have different giftings, different inclinations. I know the engineer types are more likely to like, get into those nitty-gritty details, while other personality types might not. But I think we all have a duty and a responsibility to uh, study the word of God in both ways. Both, yes, first and foremost, for our own spiritual nourishment, but also to study it as a real a book that we should know in and out in the technical details and for the spiritual truth that it conveys. So one more uh, part about the broad context, kind of narrowing into our theme of mercy, which is this story takes place as what most scholars will see a sequence of three stories in which Jesus displays his power. Three stories in which Jesus displays his power. This would be actually the first in which Jesus displays, or actually this is the second, sorry. So the first story in these series, beginning at Luke 8:22 to 25, you see Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, that's a story in which is the, the great storm comes about and his disciples are terrified, and yet Jesus displays the fact that he has the power over nature to calm the storm. The next story in this sequence is our text this morning, in the Gospel of Luke, it's verse 26 to 39, and in this one, Jesus displays his power over the spiritual realm by exercising this demon from this man and not just a single demon, this legion of demons that possesses man, this man. And then if we were to have continued reading in the text of Luke, we would have come across a third story, which displays that Jesus has the power over disease and death. That's the story of the bleeding woman who reached out and touched Jesus's uh, the hem of his garment. And was healed from bleeding for many years. And that story is interwoven with the story of Jairus, whose seven-year-old daughter had just died. And in this story, again, we see that he has the power over disease with the woman and death, Jairus' daughter. So there's this clear sequence of Jesus demonstrating the power that he has over all things. The power over nature, the power over the spiritual, and the power over sickness and the power of over even death. And in our uh, story this morning with the demoniac, we see that the demonstration of his power shows that he is the sovereign Lord with absolute authority over all things. Yes, he is in his state of humiliation. Yes, his his authority and his power might not be as evident. As it will be on the day in which he returns in judgment to judge the world. And yet we must not forget that Jesus displays his his power over all things throughout his earthly ministry. But that should lead us to a question. Yes, he displays his power, but to what end? What is the purpose of Jesus displaying his power in this way? Is it merely to flex his muscles and to show his strength to the people? Is it to make them awe ah, and, and wonder in, like they would at a magician displaying uh, some magical trick? Or is the greater purpose in his displays of power? I think we have to see that we see clearly in here that there is a greater purpose, it's not merely to show his power. There is something going on. And I think one thing that highlights that a peculiarity of this story is that Jesus has his, his ministry going on on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So him and his disciples get on the boat, they sail over, and pretty much the only thing that happens in sailing across is this event. And then they immediately sail back. Which seems that Jesus had some ver- a very intentional purpose in sailing across there. And the only thing we can really be left to say is that he intentionally went all the way across the sea to save this one man. He went all the way across the sea. Yes, it is a display of his power. But I think more importantly, it's a display of his mercy. And I think that's why uh, that is such a central theme in this story this morning. The theme of mercy, because it is clear that that is at the heart of what Jesus is doing here. So. Mercy. Jesus doesn't display his power just for the sake of displaying his power. He displays it to show that he is unlike the other gods. Do you understand that That the pagan world believed in the gods? They even oftentimes, uh, if you look deeply at their system, they, they believed in a god over the other gods. They believed that these gods have power. They believed that these gods had authority. But what did the pagan gods not have? The pagans did not have merciful gods, right? Their gods had no mercy. What Jesus shows here is that, yes, he's the almighty, powerful God with authority over all things. But he, in his power that he could use rightfully to crush us all and to obliterate the earth, has chosen instead to show mercy and grace to some. So before we, though, get to the mercy, the redemptive mercy which I spoke of, that is shown to the demoniac I mentioned earlier, that I wanted to talk about a broader kind of mercy which I see in this passage to the demons and to the people, to the townspeople in this town. Uh, so I, I wouldn't... I uh, doubt that some of you right now are thinking that this is a strange idea that I'm saying that he showed mercy to the demons. Now, don't worry. Don't fret. I'm not saying that he saves them from eternal judgment and condemnation. But I do think if we look at the way that he interacts with the demon in this story, that there is a certain patience and kindness that he shows to them. There's a certain patience and kindness, which we can describe as mercy, that he shows to the demons Let's consider the interaction that Jesus has. So in verse 28, we begin with Jesus approaches this man and is talking to him. And the first words out are, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And when we first get to this verse, there's a, at least for me, it was, I was not sure. Is it the man talking or is it the demons talking? And even as I read on, I was like, which is it both? Is it the demons speaking through the man But I think that there's a couple clues that this man really is in the background. The man himself is in the background. These are the demons speaking to Jesus. I think a few indicators are there. The fact that they know who this man is. Jesus, the son of the Most High God. Seems like the demons pick up on that a lot faster than any of the humans in the area. Right? So that's our clue number one, that this is actually not the man talking to Jesus himself. Uh, but that is actually the demons. And for, furthermore, when Jesus asked him, what is your name? I guess that could be clue, too, just the fact that he even asked it. But then the response, Legion. And so we see that it is the demons who are the ones speaking through this man, confirming that they are the one that Jesus is communicating with. So as the story goes on, uh, Jesus actually commands these demons to leave the man And yet, right after he responds, which this is the the sovereign God over all, the one who has already displayed that he has authority over all. And yet the demons have the gall to even pause for half a second. He commands them to leave, and yet they don't. Rather, they speak back to him and they make a request. And what is the request that the demons make of Jesus? They ask him two things. That they not be sent into the abyss or the outer darkness, depending on what translation you're reading. And then they ask for permission to go into the pigs. And rather than completely freaking out on them for not obeying on the first time, he showed, yes, moms, little application there, not completely freaking out and dads myself included, not freaking out and not being immediately obeyed on the first time, he actually grants them their request. He grants them their request to not be cast into outer darkness and to be sent into the pigs. And so there are a few things in this interaction with the demons that I think should display Jesus' patience and kindness, his mercy towards the demons. First of all, it's just a striking tenor of the conversation. Again, the fact that Jesus... Even gave them an ounce of his time. That Jesus interacted with them at all. That Jesus would have any conversation with them. is striking. Then further add to that the fact that again he didn't freak out when they delayed in their obedience. And then actually granted them what they requested. This shows Jesus' patience with them. Yes, in that moment that he didn't uh, blow his lid on them. But even furthermore, it also shows the general patience of God, both towards the demonic world and to humans, that there is going to be a day of judgment coming. These demons knew that there's a day of judgment coming. They speak about that in one of the parallel passages. But he's being patient with them. That judgment has not yet come. And he's patient in his interaction. He has also showed them a kindness in granting them what they requested to go to the pigs. Yet you know, we must be clear. Though there is a mercy, there is a kindness, there is a patience that has been shown to them. It is a temporal mercy. Yes, he lets them go to the pigs, and then they show their own destructive nature by as soon as they go into the pigs by rushing down into the sea. And like I said a minute ago, it's temporal because there is still a judgment awaiting them that they themselves knew. In Matthew eight twenty nine, they. Say to him, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They knew that there is a appointed time in which they are going to be judged. And yet Jesus is holding back because he knows that the day is to come. And as we as the people of God think about this, think about how Jesus interacted with these demons and shows this kind of patience and kindness to them, to those who are actively opposing everything that he does on this earth. How much more should we show mercy and kindness to the enemies of God? Is there anybody in your life right now who is actively opposing you because of your faith? I don't know. Maybe there isn't. Maybe we have a room full of people who have nobody opposing them directly because of their faith. And if that's the case, praise God for that. Praise God that we live in a place where we're not facing that kind of opposition. But I will say, if you're in this room right now, If you have someone who you know has become your enemy because your allegiance is to King Jesus, take heart. Your king showed a great kindness and patience to his enemies. So can you. So can you. You can show that same kind of patience. You can show that same kind of, of, of kindness because you know that your God rules over all things and that one day he will reckon all things. One day he will judge the wicked and in the meantime he has called you to be like his son He has called you to testify to his mercy and grace in the hopes that even that the enemies of god would return to him And though there is no redemption held out for the demons There is hope of mercy and redemption held out for lost mankind And so as we turn from the demons let us look then at the general mercy that jesus showed to the townspeople and at first glance at this story, it, it, it really appears that the only person who received any mercy would have been the man who had been possessed by the demon, right? That's the only real evident mercy that Jesus shows at a superficial beating of this. And in fact, it seems to be quite a harsh interaction that Jesus has with the townspeople. Think about the loss of the 2,000 pigs. We get the number in the market count. The other two don't mention that the, the vast number of pigs. Now, I don't know, do we have any hog farmers in the room? We do. All right. So, can you guys imagine a farm with 2,000 pigs? Since since I haven't been on a hog farm in a while, I don't quite have like a concept of what 2,000 pigs would look like. Okay. But I so I did a little bit of research and like okay. So, how much monetary value are we talking about? 2,000 pigs. I'll be honest. I didn't do a lot of deep research. I just googled it. First thing I found was porkgateway.org. And according to um roughly speaking, one large hog is worth about $1,000 in our contemporary uh, value. So that would mean 2,000 pigs. We're talking about $2 million in modern equivalency. So I was actually very troubled by this whole thing originally. Like, why did Jesus... Grant the demons their request, knowing that it was going to be such a devastating impact on the locals. I don't get the impression that this was an area that was just loaded with lots of money, a really wealthy area, and it's like, oh, a couple million bucks, who cares? I can only imagine the economic impact on the entire region that losing $2 million worth of pork would have. Like I said, I was troubled by this. Did Jesus not care for these people, how this would impact them, what their experience would be? It definitely doesn't seem like a speaker-sensitive strategy, right? Not winning friends and influencing people on this day, Jesus. There's a great mercy underlying this. Whether the people had the eyes to see it and the, the ears to understand I think if we consider this a little bit more deeply, we can see that in what he did, there's a great mercy shown to the townspeople here. The first thing is that he rid them of the demoniac. All three accounts talk about this man as being a scourge, as a plague on the entire region. I think Mark captures it best in chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, when it said, And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him. Not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And he always day and night. Was on the mountains and in the tombs. Crying out. you got to imagine. How horrible it was at night. Hearing this man screaming out in torment in pain in torture from these demons. Imagine the impact that it would have had on the children of the area, hearing this man screaming out and cutting himself with stones. What a scene. I believe it was an account in, in Matthew, which actually, says nobody could even really go in the entire region. He made this whole area where he possessed a, a dangerous territory where you wouldn't even want to go. Honestly, it's much like what's happened, at least in my neck of the woods. I don't know if it's happened as much down here. It's a lot of the homeless camps. I, I know that there are parts of town in Olympia where I don't go anymore. Just because they have overtaken the area and the stories I've heard about what happens, even in that general region, you just don't want to go there. It's unsafe to go there. And the impact he had on this whole region. Can you imagine if someone came into town? I don't know, is, is that a thing in this general area, or is that more like in Portland? It's more down in Portland. It hasn't crept out this far. Okay. Praise God. I mean... But I can only imagine why like the people in Olympia would be rejoicing if like one of so there's one less than a mile from my house, one of the biggest camps in the area. It's uh, in the area. It's called the Jungle, and my friend who's part of the Olympia. Uh, there's been a handful of homicides there in the last couple of years. Uh, my friend, who's the Olympia police, said that their rule is that no less than three officers uh, have to be together if they are going to enter the jungle, uh, because it has become that hostile of a region to even the pl- armed police can only imagine the response that people would have if all of a sudden, all the people in the jungle just kind of got better, packed up, moved out, and cleared out of the area. What an impact it would have on that space. So the first mercy that he shows them is the healing of this demon-possessed man and getting him out of that area, ending this great affliction that had plagued the whole region. Furthermore, think there is a reality that these people wouldn't have considered, in Jesus, allowing the demons to go into the pigs. Which is, he could have let them go into the people themselves. Him actually sending the, the, the demons into the pigs was a mercy because he didn't let them free to go wherever they want and to go possess more people. Now, I'll be honest that when... A, When I first studied this, I didn't know if this was just my own kind of far-fetched idea. I don't, I'm not an expert on demonology. I don't really know what kind of things bound or limit who or what a demon can possess, right? I don't know. Uh, I have not read a uh, systematic treatment of the uh, sphere sovereignty of demons, but I was confirmed in my initial thought, inclination of this, when I read in Calvin that he said something somewhat similar. He, he talked about when the demons, why did the demons ask to go into the pigs? He said, because they dare not ask the sovereign Lord to go and possess the people. But what I think Calvin showed there, that, that was actually a possibility. That if Jesus had just said, cast them out, where would these demons go? Jesus had used his restraining mercy on these demons to prevent them from going and plaguing the entire region, to possessing more people throughout the region. And Unfortunately, these people did not have the eyes to see what Jesus had actually saved them from in restraining the activity of these demons who didn't want to be cast into outer darkness, but who Jesus would not allow to go to possess the people of the land. I think the third mercy, arguably the greatest mercy that he showed the people of the region, is the fact that he testified to the mercy and goodness of God in what he had done for this man. The work that he did in in ridding this man of these demons was a testimony to the mercy and goodness of God. And yet, unfortunately, the people of Lynn did not have the eyes to see what he was displaying to them, what he was showing them. There was an implicit invitation if there is there is great mercy for this man, and so there is for you. And yet, how did the people of the region respond? They didn't say, fall down before him and say, please show me this same great mercy. You are so powerful and yet so kind. Instead, they asked him to leave. Don't know exactly. There's two real reasons. I think it's actually probably a combination of both. I Think the initial inclinations they left because they were furious about the pigs, right? I think we read this and we think, they're upset about the pigs and they don't want to have anything to do with this guy because all that they can see is the economic disaster that he just brought on their region. And they can't get past that. I think there's a lesson in that ourselves. Our, Our own tendency to be so caught up on the material world, on wealth, on money, our financial status, that we can easily miss the true riches That are in life. But the interesting thing is. is when, When all three passages talk about. The people of the town asking Jesus to leave. There's also a comment. Of them being afraid. You get this sense. That they were actually horrified. That at his display of power. Over the demons. That freaked them out. They didn't know what to make of it. And yet unfortunately. They couldn't see. Like He's just shown such a kindness. To this demoniac. Would he possibly, this powerful being who had the authority over those demons, be able to show that same mercy to me? And they just don't seem to be able to see that. But I don't think that discounts the fact that Jesus had shown them a mercy in revealing to them the mercy and kindness of God. But it was their own hearts, their own hardened hearts, which failed to see this mercy. So both with the demons and with the townspeople, we see a general mercy from Jesus, a general kindness a general patience. And I think that they are true displays of mercy. But the truth is that they aren't redemptive mercy. They aren't heart-changing mercy. They aren't the kind of mercy that we will now see as we turn to Jesus' interactions. Interaction with the demoniac. And since my uh, primary text here is a Luke, I'm going to be speaking of the one demoniac that that talks to. I forgot one more thing I was going to say about the general mercy, which is this. I think as evangel, as conservative, evangelical, reformed Christians, sometimes there's a tendency in our camp, myself fully included in this, to downplay mercy ministry or acts of mercy in this world because we, we know that ultimate hope is found in the gospel alone, right? There is no hope in a homeless shelter or a food bank if that's where the story ends, right? If people are ultimately left in their sins and to an eternity of condemnation in hell, we could bring them all the riches, all the prosperity, all the temporal peace that there is. And yet, how could we call that ultimate mercy in any kind of way? And I think since we know that and understand that, that the greatest hope, that the greatest mercy is in the gospel sometimes forget the importance of the lesser mercy, of that more temporal kind of mercy, that general mercy, just general acts of kindness towards suffering and hurting people in this world. Unfortunately, oftentimes, liberals outdo us in this area. They oftentimes are better at showing general kindness to the suffering in the world. Not always. I know that there's a lot of wonderful conservative people who do those things, and they just don't tout it. So you don't hear about it, right? But I think there is also some truth in some conservative circles where we think, well, people just need, just need the gospel, and we forget to show them the general kindness. Forgetting that oftentimes it's that general kindness that testifies to the greater mercy that God then uses as a gateway, as a, a path, toward showing his special redemptive mercy, which is in the gospel alone. So people of God, take this to heart that, yes, our ultimate hope is in the gospel, in the hope of salvation, in the forgiveness of sins, and in eternity with God the Father. But that shouldn't discount the place of showing kindness to the suffering people in this world. But the final point, the special redemptive mercy that Jesus shows to the demoniac This is, I think, the most obvious element of the story. The redemption of this man
1: whose original condition was being possessed by a demon
0: day and night, crying out and cutting himself. A man who is so overcome by the possession of this legion of demons that he's unable to make any plea or request on his own behalf. And then Jesus restores this man in Luke eight thirty five to 36, we read. And then they, speaking of the townspeople, they went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and this same man who had been so tormented, who had been so consumed by the uh, power of this legion of demons. This man they found sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Makes me think of like a Thomas Kincaid painting or something like that. Not a big fan of Thomas Kincaid, but it's like just, I get this sense of like overwhelming, like just peace. Like this man who had been so um, tormented. And the contrast of that and the peace that he has now sitting at Jesus' feet. We see that this is a lot more than the temporal mercy shown. To the demons and the townspeople, and what, what is the evidence that something deeper is going on here? That this isn't just the equivalent to, you know, getting him off drugs or something else to then go back to something. I think the first piece of evidence is that he didn't go on his own way immediately afterwards, as the demons did, and he didn't express ingratitude as the townspeople did. There is no, and while there is no reference to sin, faith, or repentance. On this man's part, I, see we, I think we see the fruits of all of it filling this account. One of the evidence is that in verse 35, again, it says that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is a man who desired to be with Jesus. This is a man who desired to hear from Jesus. A man who desired to learn from Jesus. And we know that that true desire to be with Jesus only comes by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating hardened human hearts. Uh, we see that he wanted to be with Jesus. Then in verse 38, he begs to go on and to travel and stay with Jesus. But then Jesus had other plans. In verse 39, we are told that Jesus tells the man, he commissioned, Jesus actually commissions this man, telling him, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. So not only did this man want to be taught by Jesus, he want, not only did he want to be with Jesus, not only was he commissioned by Jesus, but he was also used mightily by Jesus as well. Because in Mark chapter 5 verse 20 we read, So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And listen to this, and all the people were amazed. This truly is a man who had been transformed by the redemptive mercy of Christ. So, as we think about this story, the general mercy Jesus shows the demons and the town people, and the redemptive mercy he shows to the demoniac, there's a few final points of consideration that I'd like to, us to walk away with this afternoon. Actually, I actually already mentioned the first one, which is that redeeming mercy shouldn't cause us to dismiss the call to general mercy. I want to just say again, because of the importance of how much that testifies to the nature and character of Christ, of our God, as of our Father. That as the church, are we known as merciful people? Are we known as people who show kindness to others in this world? Not because, as Hugo thought, that alone would be enough to transform people. Don't be mistaken. You can show all the kindness that you want to a lost sinner, but you do not have the power to transform their broken hearts. But it doesn't mean that that kindness is irrelevant. Because what it does is it testifies to your God. You are his people, and you are his ambassadors in this world, and people will look at you and know what he is like. So do people know you as merciful? as kind, as tender-hearted, as bringing comfort to the afflicted. Sometimes the mercy is more evident than not. Sometimes mercy comes in difficult forms. Sometimes mercy comes in the form of discipline. Other times it comes with a warm hug. Second takeaway from this general account is, do we believe that God can save the most difficult Think about this demoniac. If you were to go to that region, you know the Messiah has come, and you think, okay, who in this whole area is going to be the most likely to be a follower of this new Jesus guy who's shown up on the scene? Uh, Who's going to be the most likely to give up everything and follow after him? I doubt that that insane, demon-possessed man who keeps children up at night with nightmares would have been anybody's guess. (sighs) And so when we look out at the world, do we think that we can guess who God is going to save? Who God is going to show His special redemptive mercy to? I, I'll admit, I, I fall into that on my street. We pray for our neighbors. We look for opportunities to evangelize them. And we just had a really nice southern family that's in the military move into the neighborhood. I was like, these are the kind of people that God would want to save. And then we have our neighbors next to us. We actually like them a lot, but they're like super progressive, uh, not talking about them. They're they're pretty far on the left. And I have this tendency to think to myself, oh, God's going to save this nice southern family and probably not have much for them. But the truth is, I have no idea. God in his sovereignty will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. And oftentimes he shows his mercy to the least expected of people. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that we can figure out who God is going to save and then somehow cater our efforts towards evangelism and work toward those people particularly. And the final thing for each of you in here. Do you identify with the demoniac in the story that we just heard, of this encounter that we just heard of Jesus? Do you see yourself In that man who had been possessed by a legion of demons. If not, let's just recount some of the basic facts. This was a man who was utterly incapable of even crying out to Jesus for mercy. Do you know that before the Holy Spirit transformed your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh... So were you. You may have not been possessed by demon. You may have had the ability to utter words. But you did not have a heart that was inclined to cry out to God. You did not have a heart that would ever, in and of itself, cry out for the mercy of God. And yet, though this man was unable, in and of himself, to cry out for the mercy of God, Jesus came and changed him and gave him new life. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is your story as well. It's your story if you were raised in a Christian home and you don't know a day in which Jesus wasn't your Lord and Savior. There was a point in time since we were all born in sin in which your heart was changed. If you know Jesus, you at one point in time had a heart, were the demoniac unable to cry out. Like the demoniac also, you if you know Jesus have been shown a mercy which you can't even fathom. You have been given a life which you cannot even fathom. You have been given a peace and a hope and a joy and a future that you can't even fathom. So I think the question then today is, do you identify with the demoniac? Because I think if you do, you cannot help but have the same response of the demoniac. Consider the demoniac's response after he had been deliberated, after he had been freed and after he had seen the great work which Jesus had done in his heart, which he's done for you. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, that he responded in delight at being in his presence. He responded with a longing to be with his Savior. He didn't want to part ways with Jesus. He wanted to be with him. Do you want to be with your Savior? And when Jesus said, not now. I need to go back across the sea, but you have work to do. When he was commissioned by Jesus, he took great joy and delight in being used by his Savior. And by God's grace, he was used mightily to expand the kingdom of God. Which is the calling to each and every one of you in here this morning, to treasure your Savior and to do his work. Because there will be a day where you get to rejoin him and be in his presence. That's right.